Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Dr. Eric Howell. Eric is a neuroscientist. He received his PhD in neuroscience from the University of Wisconsin, where he studied under the sleep and consciousness researcher Giulio Tononi. He did his postdoctoral work at Columbia University, where he used information theory and other analytical tools to explore the biological basis of consciousness. One area where Eric has done some really interesting work and thinking is the biological function of dreams. He has come up with the so-called overfitted brain hypothesis of dreaming, which explains the potential adaptive function of dreams by drawing analogies to techniques used to train deep neural networks in the world of machine learning. So we spent much of our discussion talking about the biology and phenomenology of dreams and sleep generally including some of the evidence and various theories for why we sleep. We discussed deep learning on a very basic level, and Eric described the overfitted brain hypothesis of dreaming that he's come up with. So we spent a lot of time talking about dreams and what they're like and why they might be that way and what that's actually doing for organisms and for humans. We also discuss fiction and the arts, including Eric's new novel, and the potential evolutionary reasons for why humans create and consume fiction at all. We also discussed some technology-driven developments that are reshaping how we create and consume written work online. So if you're interested in sleep and dreams or the intersection of science and and fiction and the arts, this will be a pretty interesting podcast. I think it was a really interesting combination of things that I was able to touch on, given Eric's unique background as both a scientist and a writer, an essayist, as well as a novelist. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on YouTube if you want to see the video version of each episode. You can also subscribe to my Substack. There's a free subscription that comes with written content and a free weekly newsletter that has updates about the podcast, including upcoming guests, various interesting things I'm seeing in the scientific research world and in in the news that's science-related. And there's also a paid version, which gets you early access to episodes before, usually a few days before they come online, as well as some other perks that you can look up online. That's mindandmatter.substack com, So you can check that out if you want to learn more. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
immunity is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Eric Howell. Eric Howell, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give everyone a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm a research professor at Tufts University. I'm a neuroscientist uh, and an author. Um, I'm, I run an online blog called The Intrinsic Perspective. I also recently authored a, a fiction book called The Revelations. And uh, my interests um, kind of converge in talking about things like consciousness, uh, emergence, and, and more recently, dreams, which I, I think we'll get into here. Yeah, I, uh, I read a paper that you wrote uh, not too long ago called The Overfitted Brain, Dreams Evolved to Assist Generalization, where you basically outline your, your thinking for why we actually dream and what dreams are actually doing for us. And so I want to talk a lot about sleep and dreams and build a, build a base for people in terms of what we know about the biology and the phenomenology of sleep and dreaming, how people have thought about you know, what dreams are for, or if they're for anything, and then get into some of your ideas. So can you start off by just talking about some of the basic biology of sleep architecture? So we've got REM and non-REM sleep in these different sleep stages. What does that architecture of sleep look like? And what do we know about why it's structured that way? Yeah, well, I think that there's some very common things that are in textbooks, um, but those sort of clean distinctions, you know, between REM and non-REM have become complicated of late. So, you know, the traditional story is that the brain has these very distinct phases of sleep uh, and that it's like this whole brain phenomenon. The brain is either in uh, what is called non-REM or non-rapid eye movement sleep or in REM, which is rapid eye movement sleep. And the traditional association is that REMs are uh, involve dreams and non-REM in sleep doesn't involve any dreams. And for an intuition about REM sleep and why we associate it with dreams, right? Anyone who has a dog um, and like, sees their dog sleeping, uh, you know, their eyes will be flickering back and forth and they'll be, you know, moving their body around and you say, you know, oh, it's dreaming. Um, this sort of global holistic view, um, wherein you have these separate sleep stages, everything kind of always goes in the, in the correct order. And the brain is either in a global state or not has been, uh, you know, complexified of late as things often are in neuroscience, you know, where it turns out that actually parts of the brain, it may be possible that they they're locally sleeping. So the predominant feature of non-REM are these big, slow waves of activity that traverse the cortex. So it's kind of like imagining a big wave of, of neurons spiking going across the cortex as this kind of the traditional view. And we do pick those up, but you know, they can happen kind of locally in local areas. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we should think about dreaming uh, and sleep as something that is quite widespread and something that's quite kind of wrapped up. Um, it's, it's actually true that, for example, if you do sudden wake-ups of people where you wake them up 
when they're asleep, even if they're in deep non-REM, you'll get dream, dream reports. Not all the time, but you'll get them. And so, you know, we should be aware that the things that, you know, an electroencephalogram um, that reads brainwaves can pick up are generally pretty surface level phenomenon. And there's all sorts of, you know, wonky stuff involving local field potentials and so on. So, you know, I, I think that it's important to, it's, it's important to have kind of like a conceptual basis about the types of sleep and, 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 and the stages that the brain goes through. But at the same time, um, I think it's also important to note that we don't quite know where the clean separation is between exactly when the brain is, brain is dreaming and, and when it's not. Mm. So, so there's not necessarily as clean a separation between REM and non-REM sleep as people once thought, but in general, just give us the broad stroke. So, so you mentioned that if you wake someone up from non-REM sleep, they can report dreams just as they do with REM sleep. Um, how often does that happen? Is there a frequency difference there? And in addition to that, are, are the dreams, are they, do they have a different kind of content when people report them coming out of non-REM versus REM sleep? Well, that's the, well, so, so first of all, you know, there's no like actual final statistic for any of this stuff. You know, I, I think scientists are, <laughs> scientists get used to this sort of thing where they're like 20%, right? It's like, well, what study is that from? There's some studies, 20%, some studies, 30%, right? It, it depends on the, the time of night. Um, so, you know, your, your, the sort of dream that you have uh, changes throughout the night, um, particularly as you, as you get kind of later on, you, you generally get more REM and your dreams get more kind of like elaborate. Uh, early on in the night, dreams are a little bit more kind of like mind wandering. And in fact, if you, if you kind of think about that, that moment between wake and sleep, you know, as you're losing consciousness, generally it's a, it's an, it's an episode of mind wandering, right? So, so there's a deep sense in which dreams are an extension of mind wandering. Um, but, you know, to, to, to what degree that there is, you know, it's, it's probably very dependent per person and, and, uh, and so on. But I do think that there is good evidence that, that dreams are quite important. And I don't think that nature really kind of makes mistakes and has these, uh, these epiphenomena just hanging around, uh, they seem, they seem, you know, the, the entire structure of the brain seems bent on, you know, allowing for dreams. And that to me speaks that probably they have a, have, a, have an evolved, an important evolved function, um, like a high level function. And that's where this overfitted brain hypothesis came into play because, you know, there's a number of, uh, interesting viable hypotheses about, what that overall function of, of dreams are, but I really hadn't heard this one uh, like like well articulated or, or well represented. Um, you know, it, it kind of kind of aspects of it it fits with with kind of other theories, right? So aspects of it have shown up in in some other um, um, some of other people's works on, on dreaming, but I really hadn't heard the hypothesis kind of put together and, and argued for in a in a way that I thought was uh, kind of as convincing as it as it nearly could be. Yeah. Before we get to this overfitted brain hypothesis itself, I want to talk more about you know why why you would make the strong case that dreams serve an evolved function that they're adaptive in some way because you know throughout history people have also argued as as you mentioned that dreams are just epiphenomenal that they don't they're not really doing anything themselves. I, I'm hoping you could discuss what the evidence is that dreams actually evolved um, for an adaptive purpose. And I'd like you to discuss that by, by maybe talking about both the homeostatic regulation of sleep and what that means, as well as its phylogenetic conservation in, in the animal kingdom. Yeah, well, 
I mean, two things. So, so one is that you know, scientists love calling things epiphenomenal that they don't understand, right? So this is like the the, the go-to move, right? It's kind of like the um, particularly particularly in biology, it's it's very similar to uh, what occurs in medicine when when people say maybe it's psychosomatic, right? Like maybe mm. maybe all these you know uh, you know hundreds of thousands of, of, of Lyme's disease sufferers, you know, maybe it's just, maybe it's just psychosomatic, right? Maybe they're just crazy because we can't really find anything. Uh, and I think, you know, so, so this, this kind of shows up in the, the, that's the worst case scenario, right? But it kind of shows up in medicine and it shows up in the sciences when we have a phenomenon that we can't really explain in biology or psychology. Another great example of this is consciousness. And then we say, this is, uh, this is a, an epiphenomenon, right? And I think that what's, why, you know, in particular for dreams, um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, dreams are kind of well, pretty well conserved. It seems, you know, um, particularly animals that, that do a lot of learning uh, dream a great deal. Again, we are making a bit of a judgment there. You can't do sudden wake-ups of animals and ask them about what they're, they're dreaming about. So again, we're relying on this sort of association between REM and non-REM that is uh, not really 100%, right? Um, you can like not get dream reports when, when people are in REM and you can get dream reports when people are in non-REM, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's always like strange cases in biology where people will be like, well, there's some bat that, you know, dreams like 20 hours of the day or something like that if you judge off of its non-REM, right? And it's like, yeah, but may maybe, right? And maybe that's a big problem or maybe we just can't do sudden wake-up experiments on, on bats and, you know, their, their brain architectures are, are subtly different from ours and so on. Um, you know, in general, it seems as if m organisms that need to do complex learning dream. So, so mammals dream. And what is the, what is the defining feature of a mammal? Uh, mammal? Mammillary glands, mothers. Like mothers are the defining feature of mammals. They're what make mammals mammals. And mothers teach their young, right? That's the, the fundamental and most important function of, of the mother. Uh, do things beyond mammals dream? Almost certainly uh, but it's a get, again, it gets a bit harder to figure out because now you're making claims by the, the homology or you're making claims mm -hmm. by like this neural area kind of looks like this neural area in human and so on. So um, but I think I think we can be confident that in general, it seems most complex uh, organisms that 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 need to learn a lot do dream. You know, it would be interesting to get kind of final you know, proof if like cephalopods dream or something like that. But mm -hmm. I, I think we should kind of take, take dreaming very seriously as, as evolution seems to do. And therefore we should treat it as not an epiphenomenon. And particularly we should pay attention to the, the way that dream, the experience of dreaming, the phenomenology, what philosophers and psychologists call phenomenology, which is the structure of your conscious experience. So like phenomenology is what changes if you're on acid or something, right? Uh, the phenomenal, or when you're dreaming versus sleep more relevantly, the phenomenology of dreams is very particular and is very different from wake in a couple distinct ways. So I think a theory of dreams should need to explain why dreams are so dreamlike, right? Um, and I think that that's kind of the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, not only, so you mentioned, you know, we can't really wake an animal up and ask them if they were dreaming. So we have to make these inferences about, you know, the association with dreaming and REM sleep and the fact that, you know, majority of time that you wake a human up from REM, they typically say that they're dreaming, but even that's not completely reliable, right? Because I imagine there's cases where, you know, you wake someone up and maybe they don't report they're dreaming, but they simply don't remember that they were dreaming. Yeah, it could be, it could be, uh, you know, I, I remember, um, talking to someone who studied um 
uh, the hemispheric sleep in uh, dolphins, because it, it seems as if that what's going on with these, these organisms that need to keep moving, like how they do sleep is that they do this sort of time sharing thing where one hemisphere is asleep and the other one is awake. Maybe they don't do it all the time, but they do it some of the time, right? And the way you can tell, right, is that one hemisphere kind of looks like it's awake uh, when you when you measure its brainwaves, and then the other hemisphere looks like it's in deep sleep with like big, big waves. And, you know, I asked like, well, what about when the other hemisphere is dreaming? Like, how, how, how do you know when it's doing that, right? Like that looks pretty similar to wake. Now, if you do like a really detailed analysis of humans and you do a lot of kind of statistics, maybe you can kind of figure out that there's actually like a difference just off of the, off of the brain waves, but basically a dreaming brain looks quite similar to an awake brain. So, you know, if there's, if there's local sleep or hemispheric sleep, what about local dreams, right? Or, or hemispheric dreams, right? So we, it's, it's, it's very difficult to tell what's going on uh, you know, in this huge constellation of, of neurons that make up the cortex, when all we have is this like brief verbal output. And, uh, you know, this causes uh, huge amounts of problems uh, throughout neuroscience. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that it could very well be the case that we're dreaming almost constantly when we're asleep. Um, and that it's actually just that during non-REM or during these cases, you all your kind of reportage systems are come online last and all the long-term storage stuff comes on last. And so you almost are never reporting anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, 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 it would not shock me beyond belief to, that in a hundred years, uh, the neuroscientific understanding is that there is like a steady thread of consciousness that maintains itself the entire time, even when you're out with anesthesia or with, uh, or with, in a deep sleep and actually, but it's just very minor. It's very thin. So again, uh, you know, I, and I, the reason why I kind of, talk this way and think this way is that, you know, I don't, I, I really don't want to mislead people about the current state of research, which, which I view as, as primitive, like, like very, very primitive in that we're, we're in incredibly early days and trying to figure out how the, the brain as a whole works. And, and even something like dreams, which we spend multiple hours in every night, you would think it would be well understood, uh, is still kind of up there and that we up in the air and that we don't, we don't really know the function of it. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean for stages of sleep, sleep to be homeostatically regulated. So, so as an example, if you somehow deprive someone of REM sleep, what happens when you stop depriving them? Of yeah. That? So, you know, when, when you have, and again, you know, this is, so, you know, again, when this is done in these studies, you know, it's, we're talking about studies with like 20 people in them. Right. And what, what, what you're talking about is this, this REM rebound effect, um, which is that if you deprive someone of, of REM, they generally have more REM the, the next night. And I do think that that's, that's quite interesting and is evidence that uh, maybe dreams specifically have a homeostatic component where you kind of need to dream a, a certain amount, right? And so you might say, okay, well, that's you know, case, case closed there. But what about these cases of, you know, where people, there seem to be some drugs that suppress dreams. Sometimes people take them for long times. Sometimes when people are completely fine, doesn't even have a, have a detrimental effect, right? So we don't, you know, there, there have been some interesting experiments where people try to like de- deprive an animal of dreams entirely to see what happens. Um, they did some experiments like this in the, in the 80s, uh, particularly involving, I think, rats. And, you know, it's like, well, how do you do that? Well, you have to have the rat basically wake up whenever there's, uh, whenever they move from non-REM to REM, right? So you have, you're tracking what's going on in the brain. You're waking them up every time they get into REM and trying to selectively deprive them, ablate the, the, the dreaming aspect of sleep. But how do you do that? Well, you have to wake them up, which is very stressful, 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, you're basically torturing these rats, right? I mean, the, these these rats are are in you know some some it's it's, it's not a fun time to be a rat in that experiment, right? So now they're they're immensely stressed out. They're on like this moving platform that you know kicks into gear and keeps them moving. And so then, you know, so some of these rats started dying. And then it's an interesting question, right? Which is that, is it the lack of dreams that's killing them? Is it kind of like the, the, the stressful experience of the, of the experiment itself that's, that's killing them? Um, you know, these, these things are quite difficult to untangle. So I think that probably, you know, from the compendium of evidence, it does look like, like dreaming and sleep, certainly sleep in general is homeostatically regulated. Like there's no question that sleep in general is homeostatically regulated. Uh, but, you know, for, for dreams in particular, I think probably, but my guess is, is that it just doesn't start, it doesn't matter as much as you get older. And this is something that I think people, you know, within neuroscience need to face, which is that there may be functions of things that it's almost impossible to tell over a single night, given almost any experiment you run. Mm-hmm. So an, an example being like, is there really a cognitive deficit from not dreaming for a single night? Well, if the impact of dreams is cumulative over your entire life, then there might not be at all, right? Which would explain why, I mean, even for sleep, right? Like, I mean, we think of sleep as something incredibly important. There are plenty of elderly people who get four hours, three to four hours of sleep every night. And many of them continue to function at a relatively high cognitive level, uh, particularly compared to their population, right? You just sleep less as you get older. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question then is, okay, so what what should that tell us about, you know, the, the... the fundamental properties of sleep and what it does and what it might tell us is that, listen, we're dealing with something that's, that's cumulative over a life. So, you know, sleep and learning is about crafting something that is successful at, at various tasks, right? So that's what a neural network is. It's something that gets good at various things. It gets fitted to various things, right? So, you know, eventually when you have a really kind of good human brain, that's well-fitted, well-generalized, and, and, and it's kind of appropriately learned what it's supposed to learn, you, you probably don't need to sleep or dream that much, to, to be mm-hmm. honest. That, that's, that's what I think. Um, and then you think how difficult that is then to show up in like a single night's experiment by sleep depriving people and hoping that they have some effect on their cognitive mm-hmm. performance and so on. Yeah. So before we talk about dreaming more, <clears throat> let's actually step back a little bit and talk about sleep, sleep itself. So, you know, all of all animals that sleep, um, it may or may not be true that all of them dream. There's probably a different amount of dreaming that happens in different kinds of animals, humans being an example that that probably have relatively uh, high levels of dreaming that happen. But what do we know or what are some of the major ideas out there about the biological or physiological function of sleep itself at like the cellular level? What's like what's actually happening in our brains every night? Yeah, it's, it's probably a form of... Um, probably a form, mostly a, a form of housekeeping. So I, I think that, that that's been a longstanding hypothesis. The housekeeping can come in various kind of shapes and sizes. So, so some people recently, there's been some very interesting work that shows that the, the, the brain is basically being flushed with cerebral spinal fluid, like almost like the brain goes through a wash cycle every night, mm-hmm. right? Where it's, essentially you're being, the, the interstitial space is being flushed with the cerebral spinal fluid. And it's just like clearing out the, the garbage because of course, you know, neurons all run on these, you know, ionic pumps. They're, they're constantly, they're these little like Maxwellian demons, you know, who are constantly taking in, you know, things and then spitting things out. Right. So they, they generate garbage and it could very well just be the case that you just need a time to, to pick up the trash. 
Um, now, again, and the various forms in which that can happen, right? You could have flushing, you could have kind of other mechanisms, uh, but that's a, a longstanding and I think uh, probably probably mostly correct hypothesis about the, the very overall purpose of sleep. Of course, once you have an animal, I mean, most animals are diurnal, right? So they, they, they have a particular time in which they are geared towards, right? They're, they're selected to operate within this particular time, but it's funny, right? Because you're, you're, you're split into, uh, you know, basically two equi periods and you have to pick your, you pick either day or night, right? If you're nocturnal, then you're going to be out at night. Um, and then, or you could be out during the day and depending on which one you pick, of course, you're going to have a lot of downtime. So either housekeeping takes a while and, there's downtime and maybe dreams evolve during that period. Or alternatively, uh, it could just be the case that you really don't have very much to do as an organism when it's not your time and you have to find some way to fill the hours, right? Um, and then maybe dreams evolve because it gave you some advantages when you did that. But um, I think that, you know, in, in terms of the overall purpose of sleep, it's something that we, we understand a, a little bit better. But Still, again, surprisingly, not nearly as much as as we should, um, particularly because, you know, it's the state in which we we lose consciousness. Right. So we lose the primary property of the brain. But if you look at what's going on inside the brain at that time, you might think, for example, that all the neurons are quiescent, that they're just totally silent. But they're not right. Like neurons during non-REM can fire more than neurons when they're awake. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, this, this sort of research. Um, it, it would be very easy to be uh, kind of fooled as to kind of how far along we are. But there are some very strange facts about sleep, for example, the firing neurons ones that really isn't kind of well accounted for by, by contemporary theories. Like why slow waves? Mm -hmm. Like, like find, a, find, a, find a good hypothesis about the purpose of sleep that really, really explains why it's a slow wave, like why a big wave of activity across the cortex? Why is that necessary for like metabolic cleaning? What about this synaptic homeostasis hypothesis that I've read about? What does that actually say and, and how much evidence is there for that? Yeah, so the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis was actually uh, originated uh, by, my, by my mentor or, or, or two, actually, because uh, Chiara Chirelli is another one. Um, so I went, I got my PhD in neuroscience working uh, with uh, Giulio Tononi, who's out at the University of Wisconsin in Madison who's uh, probably well-known for, for, for two main scientific theories. The first is integrated information theory, which is a, 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 probably the first well-formalized scientific theory of consciousness. And then the second one is synaptic homeostasis hypothesis, which is the idea that during, uh, during non-REM, one of the big or maybe the main housekeeping uh, task that the brain is emphasizing and doing is a net reduction of synapses. So, you know, it's a, as, as you're learning, your synapses are potentiating. And the idea is that in general, there seems to be more potentiation, right, than depression. So, so in general, your synapses are kind of getting larger. And as, and, and, and if, if you just kept at that, right, what happens? Well, you know, eventually you'll, you'll get like an epileptic fit because your, your, your synapses are too potentiated. They're too strong right? uh, and all sorts of things will be going wrong. So you kept, kept out of whack. Um, and then the idea is that there's kind of this net downscaling that occurs where, listen, if we all just downscale, uh, then we'll keep kind of the same pattern of interact of interactivity, 
right? We'll keep the same dynamics, but we'll all kind of be net downscaled. And that kind of takes care of this, basically this problem of learning. And it's a hypothesis about, about slow waves. So it's one of those rare things where it's like, no, probably they think the, the slow wave kind of creates is the signal for the neuron to perform this downscaling task, you know, so something like, like roughly like that, right? So that is a nice hypothesis because it's, it's directly relating something that we observe and is characteristic to, uh, uh, to hopefully this, this synaptic downscaling that they observe. Now, you know, the evidence directly for it is I think, is I think go good in that we know that synapses to change overnight. I think that that's well-established. Whether they all kind of collectively do this collective downscaling, that's much more in the open. There's been a number of studies that have kind of contradicted this, showing that uh, you can have upscaling, downscaling, you can have all sorts of like learning effects that you would normally ex expect. And then, you know, also I've, I've always had a, one particular issue with it, which is that if you tried to implement that in an artificial, this is like my test for everything in neuroscience, by the way, now. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up before the deep learning revolution, and I really think that neuroscience has not, and neuroscientists have not adequately paid attention to what's going on. Not that they're like ignorant of it, but they haven't really kind of grokked that if, if we can't explain something in an artificial neural network, there's just no way we're going to be able to explain it in a brain. And a simple example of this is that we know that in artificial neural networks, which are formed of these little networks of artificial neurons, these units are nonlinear. And that means that if you did a net linear reduction of the synapses, you totally change the dynamics and the patterns of, of what that of what that artificial neuron was neural network was doing. I see. And so, I haven't seen that ever seen that articulated as an objection to to shy. I think I brought it up, you know, once or twice, uh, and I forget what 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 Julio and Kara's answers were. But you know, it's it's that that is I think problematic, and I think that we should really lean towards hypotheses that kind of make sense in artificial neural networks. Interesting. Before we get there into the artificial neural network stuff, let me just make sure I'm following. So, so there's almost certainly housekeeping functions being performed um, while we sleep, meaning at the cellular level, um, basic basic stuff has to happen. The brain has to get cleaned out in some sense. And it makes it makes some sense that that would happen during sleep while the animal is offline and not behaving, which would be at night if you're diurnal or during the day if you're nocturnal. And there's also this idea of synaptic homeostasis, which you know maybe has some mixed evidence for it. But the idea is simply that you know, if, if I'm a human who's awake during the day, I go about my day, I'm taking in all kinds of information, I'm learning things, I'm seeing things, I'm doing things, my synapses on that are going to get potentiated, meaning like literally they're going to get bigger. More proteins are going to be shuttled there. I'm going to spend a bunch of metabolic energy to make all of those synapses bigger and stronger. And if you just do that across all of the billions and billions of synapses in the brain, that's just way more energy than you can afford because most of that information throughout each day is extraneous. And so the idea of this hypothesis is that then at night, maybe particularly during REM sleep, you sort of scale back some or many or all of those synapses because you simply can't afford to maintain that much connection. Yeah, That's precisely. So you summarize it really well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it's a, it's an elegant hypothesis. Um, you, you know, whether or not it kind of survives like all of the, the empirical testing remains to be seen. And it's also a bit specific to, to, to non-REM. I mean, at least the way it's usually presented, it's specific to non-REM. Um, so it's kind of, 
you know, it may be that the brain is basically doing a huge number of, of tasks, right? And sleep is like this Swiss army knife where it's deploying, you know, 20 different kind of functions, all of which have some, some relevance and theorists are kind of picking up on, on little bits and pieces of it. It may also be the case that the brain just doesn't, doesn't do anything like that. I mean, it may just be the case that actually, you know, potentiation isn't really a problem. There, there's sort of things can only get so potentiated naturally and you actually get as much like long-term depression as you do get potentiation in the long run and everything balances out. So, you know, again, it remains to be seen, but you know, I, the second, you know, this little, like this little test that I have now is, um, is just like take the hypothesis, see if it makes any sense in an artificial neural network. If it makes like no sense, then I'm very skeptical. Um, you know, so so within neuroscience, right? So you know, so, some things do kind of make sense, like grandmother neurons, population coding, you know, stuff, stuff like that makes sense, and then some other stuff just like doesn't make any sense. So before we get to this overfitted brain hypothesis, it'll make sense to talk about deep neural networks. Before we get there. Um, cause some of the ideas connect here in interesting ways. Why don't we talk a little bit more about the phenomenology of phenomenology, phenomenology of dreams. And in particular, you mentioned in your paper, three characteristics that dreams have, and, and then you kind of connect this to artificial neural networks. You say that one, they're sparse, they're hallucinatory and last that they have narrative content. So, so what do each of those things mean? And can you just connect that to the basic phenomenology of phenomenology of dreams that people will be familiar with? Yeah, sure, of course. And, and I think it's really important to discuss phenomenology as a neuroscientist. I think it's really important to pay attention to subjective experience. And again, make sure that theories kind of fit fit with them. So sparseness is, is a, may at first seem, seem slightly weird, but, but let me explain what I mean, which is that ultimately the dream world is lower resolution than the waking world. A really easy way to see this is just that how many dreams have you had where you're doing something minute? Uh, an example would be that most people very classically don't dream about their phones. Mm. Like in a dream, you know, you're in a dream because your phone is broken, right? Because and it's basically your brain. It's like the matrix, right? Like coming up with this like glitch of like, okay, I can't, I literally don't have the resolution in your conscious experience to represent like all the little icon iconography and all the little letters and everything like that. It's the same way as you don't really read when you're dreaming as well, even if you spend a huge amount of your day on your phone, right? Like this is something that you really should be dreaming about, but you just don't. Um, another simple example is, is just that, you know, in general, uh, dreaming is, as, as we said, and this is, this is again, something that's kind of proven, relatively well proven experimentally, dreaming is related to mind wandering and it's related to kind of imagination, right? And when you, when you are thinking about something or imagining it, you're, you're generally considering it in like an abstracted framework where it's really kind of lacking the details, right? And so, you know, your imagination is sparser than your waking life. Uh, there's, there's basically no living human. And there are some people who kind of claim this, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of doubtful where, where like they can imagine something and it's just as vivid and real as real life, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, you, know, if you imagine a dinosaur out your window, it's, it's not like a scene from Jurassic Park. It's you can imagine it, you can see it, but it's not really as vivid as waking life. So dreams are, are similar to this, right? They're like these sparse events where they have detail, but they don't have the luxurious open detail of 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 waking life. Probably just because the brain can't can't really support that level of detail from the bottom up. It can't really generate that. Huh. Yeah, I mean, so it makes it makes sense. And and once you mentioned it. I do have to say, I, I don't think I, I've ever, I cannot remember a single dream I've ever had where I was looking at my phone or reading any text. Mm. 
generally which, some some people are like eh, i had this one dream once you know yeah, yeah. um uh, but you know in general i i think it's i think it's true that it's it's pretty low resolution i think probably even even like your attentional window is probably shrunk uh you know there's there, there, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what these rules are but but in general you're just not getting this bottom-up sensory stimuli the, the second property of dreams is that they're hallucinatory right and this is a little bit easier to talk about because most pretty much everyone has had crazy hallucinatory dreams. They're very uh, category breaking. So sometimes you'll be in your house, but then later it's kind of a spaceship. Maybe it's kind of both somehow, right? And you're kind of mixing up the plots. Um, you know, strange events uh, come in dreams. Like there's a reason we call, you know, uh, Twin Peaks dreamlike. David Lynch's works dreamlike, right? Dreams are Lynchian, which is super weird. It's like, why would biology evolve something lynchian like that's such a strange uh seemingly epiphenomenal property right that i think is actually not epiphenomenal i think it's very functional uh which i'll get to in a moment but i think that these two are like very broad properties about the phenomenology of dreams and they probably reflect to its function so there's something about experiencing the world in this sparse hallucinatory format that may be very helpful to learning or helpful to the overall cognitive health. And I don't mean health in the medical sense, like cognitive health is in that the brain is good at certain things, the overall cognitive health of, of, of the animal. And then in humans, humans are, have these narrative dreams. And I think, you know, that probably this is in a sense, the least important property, because I think it's very particular to humans. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I do think that all Particularly mammals are, you know, they're, they're agents that are situated in their world and their conscious experience. So they do, in a way, conceptualize the world as, prim, as sets of primitive stories. Humans conceptualize the world as stories and events. Like, it's, it's always like this, this, you know, we're always in a scene. There's always events that are occurring. Um, you know, it's not kind of the, the howling gale that it actually is in physics. Uh, you know, we, we have this very kind of constrained view of the world. And that just gets filtered in. And I think that that's probably... It's probably worth keeping in mind for the long-term consequences, but probably for other animals, it's, it's not nearly as intense. Maybe they just have scenes. There's some evidence that, that, you know, developing children don't really have narrative dreams. They have more like scenes that occur, like still scenes, um, things like that. So uh, animals in general, they might just kind of have these sparse hallucinatory scenes or quick events that, that aren't nearly as kind of like imagined and in narrative as humans. Mm -hmm. Okay. So dreams have these, these properties, they're sparse, they're sort of low resolution, and they're not very detailed compared to what you see when you're walking around looking at the world. They're hallucinatory. The, the things that are happening in dreams are very strange and they don't go together in a way that makes a lot of logical sense much of the time. And they're narrative in their structure, at least for humans. Um, you know, they sort of have a story like quality to them with you as a character, even the hero at the center of them. So with these things in mind, let's talk about deep learning now. So to start with for people who have no background in deep learning, what is deep learning and what is a deep neural network? Yeah, so um, deep deep learning is basically just this trick that that people figured out, which is that if you if you train our if if you make artificial neural networks into many layers, so rather than just having one layer of neurons that are learning the task, now you have multiple layers that feed forward from each other, and you can stack these layers quite deep. And what that allows is some sort of like modularity or hierarchy of, of abstraction, like probably roughly, this is what 
it allows. And it's what's driven such amazing progress in self-driving cars, um, you know, or, or, or these, or filtering the spam in your, in your, in your email box. So this, this kind of extrapolation to uh, the, these deeper neural networks, and it should be made clear that, listen, that was always a good idea because if you look at the brain, you do see a lot of hierarchies. You do see a lot of kind of layered structure. Mm-hmm. And so probably that that's something fundamental and innate. So, so when you're, but when you're talking about deep learning and you say neural network, what you mean is pieces of computer code, sort mm-hmm. of separate pieces of computer code that are linked to each other in a way that sort of mimics the way that different neurons in the brain are linked to each other. Yeah, exactly. Like the computer is just the operating environment, right? It's just like the world in which this thing exists. And the thing that exists is made of code. And what is made of code is basically an artificial representation of a brain. There's various simplifications that have gone into this. And of course, it's not a mammalian brain. It's like some super abstracted notion of a brain, but it's still very similar in the sense of you have these discrete units, which are neurons, they're connected to and talking to one another, and the signal kind of feeds, goes through it, and you you train these uh, you, you you train these artificial neural networks. And the way that you train them, by the way, is probably very different from the way that that our brains learn. That's something that is probably very fundamentally different between the two. But overall, I think that neuroscientists should look to deep learning and what works in deep learning. And one of the things that they discovered uh, as as they were doing this, which is that when you're training these neural networks. So, you know, these things are trained on like some set of data. So if it were, if it were a neural network that drove a self-driving car, it would be like images of the road, something like that. And what they found was that, you know, what's weird is that um, a self-driving car will actually get better at self-driving if you do this one strange trick to the data that's learning, if you augment it. And you can augment it in weird ways. An example would be that so imagine I'm training the, the car to drive, and but now I'm training it to drive, and I've placed black bars across all the input screens that it's getting. So imagine like a driving scene, but now there's like a completely black bar just put right across it. And, and you might say, wait a minute, so now the data is worse, right? How is the car now getting better at driving tasks than if I didn't randomly put in weird black bars into the data that doesn't make any sense but it does if you if you think about it in detail it's paradoxical but it does and an example would be like imagine the car is trying to learn where stop sign is and what happens is it becomes very sensitive to exactly how stop signs look and the moment something is obscuring a stop sign it it no longer knows that there is a stop sign there so imagine like a branch is obscuring it Mm. but now it's been trained under these conditions where it expects random black bars like over like halfway through the stop sign and so it says listen even if i just see a partial stop sign i know to stop right and i didn't get that from the original data set so what we've done is augmented the data by making it sparser this is a very common technique called dropout it works pretty similar to what i've described um and that seems to improve generalization by feeding this neural network sparser data. Right? So, and similarly, the, the same thing is done using um, by basically making these artificial neural networks hallucinate, right? You, you do something called domain randomization, right? And an example of that might be, I think there was a case of uh, at MIT where they're training uh, artificial neural networks to solve a Rubik's cube using a robot hand. And what they did was that they're, they're basically taking the incoming data stream and they started manipulating it so that it would appear to the artificial neural network, although this wasn't happening in the real world, that the Rubik's cube was getting bigger and smaller. 
right? So imagine you're trying to solve a Rubik's cube and now like it's like growing and shrinking in size, right? It's like this crazy, difficult, difficult thing to do. But even though that could never happen in the real world, training the artificial neural network on that actually improves the performance of it. And the reason why is that it helped them generalize. And so basically, I think that dreams share these properties and have these properties because they're times of to train offline training of the brain using broadly, very roughly similar techniques as, as is found in deep learning for data augmentation. Uh, I see. So, so to take the, the artificial neural network example, let's say you're, you're training this computer code to, to, to work as a self-driving car and it's seeing clean images of the road, pristine images of the road. You see all the lines, you see every stop sign perfectly clearly. What you're basically saying is if you train a network on a very clean and perfect quote unquote data set like that, it becomes overfit to the data such that it doesn't perform well. It's learning there doesn't generalize well to the real world. And the reason for that is, as you mentioned, the real world isn't always filled with instances where you have a clean, crisp view of that stop sign. Sometimes there's someone blocking it because they're walking across the sidewalk. Sometimes there's a tree branch in front of it. And so the resolution to the paradox that, that you stated was, you know, these, these networks weirdly get better at generalizing when you give them corrupted or incomplete data. And the reason for that is the real world itself is not, is not filled with perfect data. Exactly. You never have, and no organism will ever have a good, a, an actually good sample of the environment. We're always undersampling our own environment. And the way that I think about it, and this is kind of the, this is the pitch behind the overfitted brain hypothesis, which is that, listen, evolution has given us this amazing, particularly mammals, this amazing ability to learn very quickly and very well. But the problem with learning quickly and learning well is that you learn too well. You become too reliant on you know, the fact that the stop sign is always in bright sunlight right in front of you, or you become too reliant on, you know, the fact that you can see all the letters, right? So you're always reading stop. But the moment those letters are obscured or some letters are missing, you mess up. And so I think that there's there's both overfitting in like this very technical sense of, of machine learning uh, sorry, and, and deep learning. Uh, and I'm, I'm using it in the same way, but there's even a broader sense of, um, just getting too good at one task at the exclusion of others. And I think that that's probably something that all organisms face because frankly, life can be repetitive and boring, right? For humans, but also for, for all other mammals, right? Like you're a wolf, you get up, it's the same den, right? You just get very, very used to certain things and you learn them very, very well. And that means that you're unprepared when you need to quickly learn or, or develop a new novel task because you've become so fitted to your environment. Mm -hmm. And so dreams are like these weird breaks where it's like, okay, now we're going to do something completely different, almost like putting, you know, it's almost like keeping like a, like an astronaut muscles working by injecting little, uh, little needles into them that shock the muscles, right? There are these machines that can build muscle just by kind of shocking you and you're not actually doing anything, but they're just in the background kind of shocking you. And I think dreams might be similar to that for, for cognitive performance. They're just this like background exercise uh, that, that the brain does to kind of maintain the generality that prevents us from actually learning too well because it's, because it's such an advantage to be learning so, so quickly, right? So we're just so prone to this. Yeah. So you, you had this great line in your paper where you said, it may seem paradoxical, but a dream of flying may actually help you keep your balance running, which I thought 
kind of captured the essence of this hypothesis quite well. So, so let's just state it very explicitly. Can you summarize for people, what is your overfitted brain hypothesis and what characteristics or what observations about sleep and dreaming that have been out there for a while does this explain in your view? Yeah. So the overfitted brain hypothesis is that uh, particularly mammalian brains or brains of good learners are always in danger of overlearning, of basically overcommitting to their local daily environment, which is always going to be some undersampling of what's really going on. So you're never going to have kind of the generality that you need to. And then nature kind of realizing this at some point, I know I'm speaking anthropomorphically here, but realizing this at some point, uh, begins to kind of create augmented, corrupted versions of daily life that are out of distribution. They're, they're different from what you're sampling. And this creates a, um, a force that combats the natural tendency to become overfitted and hyper-specialized uh, in, in good learners like humans and, and other mammals. Um, and that it does this in a way that is at least somewhat reminiscent. Like if you look at the Venn diagrams of common techniques that people in deep learning use and you kind of put them together and you look at their overlap, their overlap kind of looks like the phenomenology of dreams. So it's not so much that, that, that the brain, that, you know, uh, the brain is actually implementing directly, you know, the techniques from deep learning, but it's probably, it might be implementing some version of that. And, you know, I think that this explains some, some, some interesting facts about dreams. I mean, first of all, it certainly explains dream phenomenology. So we should keep in mind that that is in a sense, one of the main things that needs to be explained is just why we have the phenomenon, why the phenomenology of dreaming is what it is. And it fits here in that just the phenomenology itself, just experiencing the dreams would have a function under this hypothesis. So in that sense, I think it does something that no other hypothesis of dreaming does, which is directly explain why the phenomenology of dreams is are why they is why it is, and why why that would have a beneficial functional physiological effect. Um, so that I think is is a big one. I think it fits overall, and that we've always known that dreams are important for learning, but you know exactly in what way has been slightly unclear. Right. So we know that sleep is important for learning, but exactly in what way is slightly unclear. And this kind of shows why it's a rather complex situation. There's also traditional associations of dreaming to things like creativity. Certainly, if you're waking up and you're in a state of like higher receptivity because you've just basically been worked over, like you've just been augmented, essentially, um, you know, in that sort of playground, you're going to be much more kind of creative and so on. So I think, and, and then, you know, there's various, you know, um, particular empirical studies that people have done where they've looked at stuff like, you know, generalization versus memorization. And, you know, it seems like maybe pure sleep doesn't help with pure memorization so much as it kind of helps with cognitive performance in general. That's another big thing. And then finally, I'll just add one last thing, which is that I think this hypothesis explains one of the few well-known experimental effects about dreams, which is that you can trigger dreams about a particular subject by either making people think about it as they go to bed or overtraining them on it during the day. So a simple example, a very famous case was having people who had never done it before do like a virtual ski simulator. And they learn this ski simulator and they're just doing the simulation over and over and over again. And then you'll find that at night, they end up dreaming about this simulation, right? And that under this hypothesis, that's very kind of well explained because 
even though they're not reviewing their memories of what happened, they're reviewing this weird dream-like corrupted version of the game. And then why that might improve performance also, also makes sense. So I think that there's both some very particular empirical results, but I think overall, it just seems to fit well. You know, I'm open to kind of contradictory evidence, uh, but I think it's it's just important to also just get new hypotheses out there that are kind of interesting and put stuff together. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, what kind of predictions this hypothesis might make in terms of the types of learning deficits that you would see if you could somehow specifically or, um, you know, if not specifically, then have a bias for depriving someone of the stages of sleep when dreams are most likely and when dreams tend to be most hallucinatory and most sort of confabulatory in their, 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 in their content. And, you know, one example that comes to mind, I'm not sure if you thought about this, but, um, my understanding is that SSRIs are actually reasonably good at suppressing REM sleep. And, you know, I remember reading papers as a graduate student where this was actually an argument made as an argument for why, you know, some type of learning mechanism was unlikely to be uh, tied to dreams because, you know, the argument was basically, uh, well, there's been people that have been on SSRIs for years or decades, and there's no obvious learning deficit with them. People go to law school, people do you know, things that require learning, even though they're not getting REM sleep and potentially not getting as many dreams as they would otherwise. Is there some kind of prediction or something that this hypothesis would say about a case like that, where maybe they're not getting overt learning deficits, but maybe they would have some other deficit that we just didn't test for? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's one that all like theories of dreams need to face, which are just these examples of people who seem to dream quite little. Um, they, they don't really occur in the natural population, although some people claim to sleep quite little, um, and so claim to sleep and dream quite little. Um, you know, so first there's the, the obvious question, which is that, do they really knock out all dreams? Mm-hmm. Right. And a simple example to this is that most people actually don't remember the dream. So if I ask you what you dreamt about last night, most of the time you'll be like, I have no idea. And you'll be like, maybe I, maybe I didn't dream. And actually you almost certainly did. And we can tell that by that if we take people and do sudden wake-up experiments. So if you were just waking up by an experimenter and they're like, what was just going on, right? You would actually have an answer. Uh, throughout a lot of the night, you would be able to come up with, with an answer to that. So, uh, there's, so there's a huge amount of dreaming that kind of doesn't make it into to what you might call just like long-term memory storage. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, and, and furthermore, right, that you can actually improve that. So if you, if you make people dream journal, which is that when you wake up and you have a dream and you, you start writing it down, what you'll find, very common effect, is that you'll remember your dreams a lot more, mm-hmm. right? So um, it may be that, you know, some of these people who are reporting that they dream very, very little, um, I don't know if there's ever been any sudden wake-up experiments done on them. It would be mm-hmm. fascinating if, if they were. So that's just to put that out there as like, we shouldn't take it as gospel that there are actually people out there who are just never dreaming. Right, right. I can, I mean, just to give an anecdote from my own life, <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to do this, but something that happened to me recently was... Um, my partner started waking up for work about an hour and a half earlier than... So the alarm was going off in the house about an hour and a half earlier than I was used to it getting up. And I was not getting up earlier. So basically the alarm wakes me up an hour and a half before I normally wake up. I immediately go back to sleep and then I wake up you know, an hour and a half or two later. What I noticed when that, that schedule change happened for us is uh, I started remembering dreams at both times. So I would wake up for the day and remember the dream that I just came out of. And I would remember the one that I had about an hour and a half before that, when that alarm first went off. And for whatever reason, I'm having good recall at both times. And you know, 
one interpretation I could have had of that was, wow, I wasn't dreaming for months and months before that. Now suddenly I'm dreaming again. But in fact, what's likely happening, I think, is I was always dreaming. It's just that that interruption is somehow allowing my memory to capture that in a way that it could not before. Yeah. And it probably has a lot to do with, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of these sort of like modular explanations of how the brain functions, but it could very well have to do with like the ordering of what brain regions are coming on. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if kind of some like long-term storage areas and like to prefrontal cortex is coming on quickly, as you wake up, you might really be able to remember the, the, the gist of the, of the dream. But if, but if that's not happening, if you have a different ordering, it might be that you're dreaming, but the way that you wake up means that you're basically getting to all the parts responsible for figuring out what just happened last. Maybe with SSRIs, right, you, you could have a switch. You, you might have some subtle difference in exactly what, what's booting up there such that you get really drastically reduced dream reports. But let me go, let, let's take it seriously for a second and say like, maybe there are people who start taking a drug and they just like shut out dreams completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually the overfitted brain hypothesis is probably one of the very, very few hypotheses that would actually still make sense. So first of all, because I expect the effect to be cumulative. And this is something that mm. is very, is, is very, first of all, different from other theories about how, how dreams function, uh, which are generally this notion of something happens during the day. And then at night, the dreams do something to the, to what happened during the day. Like it, it helps memories move to long-term storage or something like that, it's, which is not true, but like probably not true, but uh, it doesn't quite make sense, but you know, let's assume that that's your theory. Then you have this big problem if someone stops dreaming. But now if you take someone who, let's say they have a very kind of like healthy, well-adjusted brain. So basically you have a well-trained, well-fitted brain to, to your environment, right? And you suddenly stop dreaming and you're say 45, right? To what degree would that really show up as cognitive deficits? It would probably take a while. It would probably take a long time to really show up as a serious cognitive deficit because quite simply, you're well-fitted. So and your environment's maybe not changing that much. So really, you're, you're not going to notice this loss for a while. Uh, so, you know, I, I have to be careful there because I don't want to make the theories this sort of like unfalsifiable thing. Yeah. But I, I think neuroscience does not do well with hypotheses that it can't figure out like within a very brief period of time because that's our experimental window, mm-hmm. right? If the effect is mm-hmm. subtle and cumulative over, over an organism's life, right? Maybe not even subtle, but just subtle at a at a, at like a daily basis. Right. Mm -hmm. But very powerful in a cumulative long run Mm -hmm. of just this data augmentation to keep you from becoming overfitted. That's very difficult to figure out empirically. Cause let's say I go to test it and I find that actually, you know, I can, I can basically make people not dream and they, they, they generalize pretty much just as statistically well on the test the next day. It's like, well, but they already have very good, well-fitted brains and they're all kind of starting from the same spot. And the effect you're looking for is some tiny cumulative, you know, add on. Um, and so I, you know, this is an example of why testing anything in neuroscience and coming to concrete answers is, 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 is very difficult, but I think that there's a room for just let's, let's at least create a set of theories that are, that are out there and that kind of fit well with the data that we, that we have. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that I think is interesting here that you mentioned is, you know, if it's in fact true that dreams have this, have this function where they're trying to prevent overfitting, and therefore help with generalization, the effects of the dreams or the lack of dreams should be particularly prominent in cases where the animal or the human has to actually go into or out of a brand new context or environment, right? So, so you'd expect very different results from 
dream deprivation. If someone was meant to do a task they already know how to do inside of a context they're already well fit to versus one that requires them to move into a new context and sort of you know, learn the gist and the rules of that new context. And it reminds me of um, this thing that you mentioned, these anecdotes you mentioned in the paper, which which also happened to me, which is um, that near to the beginning of COVID, right, when COVID happened and sort of lockdowns came upon us, we were, you know, effectively what that means, in other words, is we were moved out of one context and put into another, right? We didn't have to take the same route to work. We were maybe working from home. Maybe you're not waking up at the same time of day. Your entire routine is different. In that sense, your context is different. And a lot of people apparently reported near to the beginning of lockdowns that their dreams were much more, I think, vivid and or weird. And so I'm wondering how you think about cases like that in the context of, of your hypothesis. Yeah, I think it I think it it explains it quite well, right? Because you're 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 going through a period of you know new intense learning. Um, but also in a sense, you're you've moved into an environment which you're then very much undersampling, right? So you just like a new undersampled environment because you're stuck in your house or so on. It would be fascinating to try to dig down into that by looking at like dream reports from, for example, prisoners, like new prisoners or something like that, um, or people who go into solitary confinement, you know, and so on. I, you know, again, I think that it's quite difficult to, to say for sure, right? So you can find some supporting, you could you could find supporting evidence for this theory in a lot of places. Figuring out ways to 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 falsify it uh, is, is, is a bit more difficult, but that actually is not necessarily a problem. I mean, it might be, it might be good that, it might be an indication we're on the right track that the it seems to kind of fit well with 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 various things and you can kind of quickly come up with with explanations for a lot of the phenomenon that we observe mm-hmm. the other interesting area that this gets into is aspects of human culture in particular things like fiction and stories like why do we make movies why do we write novels this is obviously something that's specific to humans and you know historically as as an evolutionary biologist or psychologist it was, you know, I imagine uh, a bit of a challenge to explain why human beings would spend so much time and energy that you could argue is, you know, wasted on something that's just untrue and, and made up and make believe. And so it's like, what really is the adaptive value of something like fiction or something like the various aspects of culture that that we can just think of as being like fiction? And you know, as someone who's thought about sleep and dreaming as a scientist, and as someone who has written fiction himself, that will come to, how do you think about how some of the ideas we've been talking about with respect to dreams tie into how you think about why humans evolved the capacity to 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 generate cultures in the way that we have them, where we're literally making up things that aren't true? What might those be doing for us? Yeah, so this is a great um, uh, kind of summary. You know, like this is something that I've written about. Um, if people are kind of interested in some a longer form discussion of this, there's an essay of mine uh, called Enter the Supersensorium, uh, which is a, about the overfitted brain hypothesis and, and what it means for, for, for our consumption of fictions. My favorite thought experiment in regards to this is the notion of like realist aliens. You know, so, so aliens come to Earth and let's just say they're realists. And by realists, I mean that they just hate fictions. To them, fictions are lies. So if someone says to them, you know, this person did X, you know, Harry Potter killed Voldemort, right? They'd be like, you're lying to me right now. Please don't do that. That's unacceptable. We should just speak true things and facts about the world, right? And you could, you could, it's actually a pretty imaginable culture uh, that, that does this. They just don't have any movies or books or so on, right? And we're meanwhile, like obsessed with all these stories, these, these crazy stories. And it is very strange, right? Because 
it seems like, well, we have immense selective pressure on us, both from, you know, evolution, but also just from the, from the modern world. Um, and, you know, for some reason, we spend a huge deal of our time just consuming fictional stories. And I certainly uh, am, am, am someone who not only loves those, you know, I, I, I write, I grew up in an independent bookstore. I grew up in my mother's bookstore. I sold books when I was a, when I was a teenager there. Uh, and so my whole life has revolved around books and around stories and around fictions. Uh, which are according to these realist aliens lies, right? And so what, what, how might we explain to these realist aliens uh, why we so enjoy loving fictions? And I think one answer that maybe the realist aliens would come up with, and I think maybe Steven Pinker would agree, is just that this is, it's all just cheesecake, right? Like why, it's like asking, why do humans love cheesecake? We love cheesecake because it's got a lot of fat in it. We've evolved to love fat. It's got all the fat. It's super normal stimuli. We love it. Uh, similarly, you might say, well, fictions, they're just really interesting versions of life. We love that stuff. So we, we really dig into it. And this is kind of like the null hypothesis of it. Uh, but it kind of implies that when people are consuming a fiction, they're doing something kind of dumb, right? It's like, like, like they're like cultural junk food. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great term. And, um, but th this, I think gives, gives, um, an alternative view on it. Um, and again, I'm, a, I'm not saying that this is the only justification for the production or consumption of fiction, right? So there might be all sorts of justifications, but like a very hard-nosed scientific biological one is very different from that. And in this case, it might just be that, listen, when you're an organism and you're learning, you're constantly becoming overfitted to your environment. And what you need is some out of distribution samples. And so when you go and you watch Dune, right? And you get the planet Arrakis in front of you, this is a very different like novel experience that is literally combating the the shrinking focus of your own cognitive abilities, right? Because every day you shrink a little bit because your brain is excluding the superfluous and just really getting good at exactly what you do, which is, you know, mostly sit in front of a computer like, like all of us, or you work a job, but that job is not that variable, right? So no matter what, right, all humans have this shrinking cognitive focus and maybe fictions and the arts in general are, uh, you know, aesthetically pleasing and, 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 and pleasing to us precisely because they combat us. And then that means that maybe someone who goes home and watches TV isn't being as slothful as we, we, we kind of might innately think that they are, right? Like, like maybe there's actually some work. Now, I'm not claiming that it's all good or all work or anything like that, but maybe there's actually some, in a sense, by homeostatic work going on cognitively mm -hmm. when you watch a TV show, because it's something that's, or read a book, or, or consume a fiction because it's it's so out of distribution that you just experiencing it is going to help prevent you from running into these cognitive deficits of not being able to generalize and so on. Um, and so that's I think taking the overfitted brain hypothesis seriously and applying it to to mm -hmm. to, to literature and fiction. Now that, this is very speculative, yeah, uh, yeah. but I think it's I think it's quite interesting. I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, and I mean if we take you know one of the things that I think is attractive about your hypothesis here about dreams is it's probably safe to assume, and, and there's, I guess, probably some evidence to suggest that, you know, humans are probably drinking, uh, dreaming um, more than most other animals. And so you might say, well, why is that? Well, in the context of everything you've talked about, about, you know, overfitting and generalization and how that connects to the ability to learn across contexts, you know, as I've discussed on this podcast with others before, you know, the human niche is really niche switching more so than I think any other species, humans are adapted to 
being able to literally move from one habitat to another and adapt to a brand new context. And to the extent then that an animal species has that sort of ability to switch niches, you would expect it to have more need for being concerned, for having its brain be concerned about overfitting and generalization. Yeah, precisely. And, and maybe, you know, we, 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 like my, the analogy that I've, I've given for this is that, um, you know, there's a hypothesis that one of the reasons why humans are able to have such big brains is that we uh, move our digestive systems outside of our stomachs. Uh, every, every, every other creature has to digest inside themselves, right? So they have to have really big stomachs, uh, which is a really big problem because you only have so much energy to go around. You can't, you can't, you know, you can't even get them out. Like if humans have big stomachs, you can't even get them out, right? Uh, when they're born. Uh, but what we do is that we cook our food. And that's an artificial digestion that we've 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 made into a technology, and so similarly, it might be the case that uh, dreams are such an incredibly important cognitive function. We simply don't even dream enough in life, and so we kind of artificially supplement by dream having people dedicated dreamers, like filmmakers, like shamans, like poets, you know, who dream these artificial dreams, and then we consume them outside of it in a similar way that we have moved our digestive systems outside. Hmm. So, uh, you know, while, while, on, while we are on the topic of fiction, uh, my understanding is you've actually written or you're about to publish a novel. Can you talk about w- what the novel is and what it's about, but also why, are, why have you written a novel as someone who is a, a scientist? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the, the book is, is out. It, it came out a little bit earlier this year. Um, it's called The Revelations. Uh, you can find it uh, possibly in your, in your local bookstore. You can certainly find it at like a... Barnes and Noble, um, and it's of course it's on Amazon, um, and it's a, a novel that's actually set in the world of science. It's a it's a murder mystery uh, set in the world of consciousness research, and uh, when a, a young scientist dies, and the other scientists kind of form this amateurish, noirish investigation into their death, and so so as to as to why a novel, um, you know, sure, surely I could have written a, a nonfiction book. Um, you know, I, I think one novels, I can give a, a couple of reasons, right? So one novels are, I think, much better at giving people a feel of, of something, right? So novels are about the transmission of conscious experience. And there's something very interesting about, about science itself. I think science itself is a worthy subject of literature, uh, you know, in, in a similar way that, um, and, you know, forgive the the comparison because it's deeply unfair to to Melville, but in a in a similar way that like you know uh, Herman Melville might set a novel inside the world of whaling, and that becomes itself a literary enterprise. Um, I think that science itself is a literary enterprise, and and not like science fiction, but like the actual process of discovery itself has all sorts of kind of human drama and, and human moments in it, um, and that was something that I I really wanted to to capture, and. You know, with, with that in mind, I'm also a big proponent of of not separating the arts and the sciences too much. So this this substack that I run, the intrinsic perspective, covers you know sciences and the arts uh, in, in in various in, in kind of equal equal measures. Um, and I've you know I've always I've always written, and um, you know I, I won you know, a couple of awards for my writing. I was lucky enough to win in my early 20s, and that led to me being able to you know get a get a novel published if I wanted to, and um, and I just felt like I, I had to write it. Um, and I, and I had a 
big kick out of writing it as well. And frankly, the relationship that you have with a reader uh, when it's a novel is frankly a lot better than, than when it's nonfiction. Nonfiction, you're kind of like the departer of information, right? But, uh, you know, you get to be a little bit of an artificial dreamer, right, when you're, when you're a fiction writer. And I think that it's, a bit, it's more of an intimate and more of an interesting relationship to me. How long did it take you to write it? Man, you, you, could, you could almost judge it as 10 years. I mean, there's a sense to which I was, I was writing the book before I even became a neuroscientist because I was, I was looking around for topics for, for, for novels. And I thought, you know what I would love to read? I'd love to read like a novel really like deeply set in the world of science. Um, that, would, that would appeal to me like hugely. And I just couldn't really find other than maybe a couple authors like Richard Powers, anyone doing, doing it the way that I would want it done. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, I chose what I thought was one of the most interesting and biggest problems in science, which is the problem of how the human brain generates conscious experience. And, uh, and, I, and I got very lucky and ended up working in one of the top labs um, uh, for, for that uh, during my PhD. But I was at the same time, you know, I was writing um, and, um, you know, it, probably the main text took about, took about four to five years, but then all the notes and associated other stuff, you know, it all ends up being, you know, about a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be interesting to read. It's sort of reminded me of the book, which probably I'm guessing most listeners will not have heard of, but it's very popular among scientists. It's called The Eighth Day of Creation by Horace Freeland Judson, which is a nonfiction book about the development of the field of molecular biology in the early and mid 20th century and the discovery of the genetic code and all that. And even though it's nonfiction, I think the reason it's so popular among scientists is, is that it does have this kind of literary quality to it, where, where he really did a good job of making the human drama and the characters come out in a way that does feel a little bit more like a fictional story than just sort of a, a dry regurgitation of the facts. So if you're interested in, in the history of science, I, I recommend that one for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I definitely think that, you know, a, a, at least some of the motivation to me to, to write the book is that scientists, um, you know, if, if you look at like the average depiction of scientists on TV, they're basically these like sexless brainiacs who have, you know, no personality um, and, and are generally quite boring. And then like weirdly experts at like, you know, every subject, right? Like some, somehow they're, they're, they have like this perfect knowledge of all these different things versus science. Um, whereas I, I generally have found that at, particularly at the top levels of science, um, you have people who are like inspired to do science because of their love of music, right? Or, or they have, you have people who, who their, their reasons are just as kind of human um, and understandable and fallible and interesting um, as kind of the more robotic uh, automatons that kind of populate traditional culture. So, so at, at least in part, you know, this is a book that's, you know, set within science where there's like, jealousies, there's competition, there's, uh, you know, a lot of kind of intrigue, uh, because frankly, I mean, outside of the murder, obviously, uh, you know, that, that, that's been my experience that, that um, at the top level, science is very, very human. And I'm not sure it could be any other way. Like, I do think that there's kind of like a mad poetic instinct behind science that is shared with, with the arts in particular. Um, and that this is something that, um, we lose sight of nowadays, um, and 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 maybe over rely on on sort of thinking of scientists as rational and select for people who are kind of super rational. When actually, maybe you want to select for people who are like really creative and can come up with like really new and strange ideas. Because nature doesn't always kind of work rationally or proceed kind of linearly. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, the dream imagery there sort of suggests itself. Um, 
but that's been my experience as well. Um, especially at, at the top levels of science, it's, it's very much, there's a lot of interesting personalities and there's all of the jealousies and ambitions and other human emotions that you would expect in, in any good, any good drama. Yeah, there's certainly, certainly a big, big egos as well. But again, I'm not entirely sure that this, that, 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 you know, st- stuff at a very high human level doesn't involve all, all that sort of stuff, right? Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's like the human, human emotions are an engine, right? And, and the engine produces various things. It can produce science. It can produce the arts and so on. But like, we shouldn't forget that the engine, despite the fact that science looks dry and rational, it's an engine, it's, it, it's driven by in its components, human, human emotions. So, you know, to, to me, that's what, made it so literary. And that's what I was trying to capture in the revelations. Hmm. The other thing I wanted to talk about was um, you're writing more generally. So, so you do a lot of writing that isn't directly, you know, to do with your professional academic science work. You've written the novel as we've just discussed, but you, you're also on Substack. That's, that's a place where I do a little bit of writing as well. And a lot of people have migrated to places like Substack where you're sort of uh, writing independently outside of the normal structure of a journalistic institution or some other institution. And a lot of people have um, talked about this concept of unbundling and rebundling that we're seeing you know, across industries that's being driven by, by internet technology. And so on the topic of uh, what some have called the great unbundling and the death of mainstream media, can you just start talking about why you decided to cut the cord as a writer and kind of go to Substack and do something entirely on your own like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think it's a great time to do something like that because um, well, just in a sense, just because everyone's doing it, right? But like, as, as for me personally, I had written for, um, you know, I've written essays. I love the form of the essay. I think it's, I think it's one of the most elegant um, kind of ways ways to do prose. I, I, I like, like, uh, I, I'm just a huge fan of, of essays and essayists. Um, and uh, the, the internet is a perfect is a perfect place for that. Like, the essay is the art form of the internet, right? I mean, if you, when people wake up they'll read an email, they'll go through their social media, but you know what they'll also do like right there on their phone, they'll read an essay and they aren't reading fiction. They aren't watching a movie. They aren't doing these other things, but they'll, they'll read an essay. And that's very, very powerful. Um, and so I've really been trying to get into the form more because I think it's the form of my time, right? It's like, like, like you should, you should adapt yourself to what's around you, right? Like if you're, if, if you're a, a, a playwright in Elizabethan England, right? You should probably do, sonnets, right? You, you probably do, you probably do what, what the forms that are popular, right? And so I think now is the golden age of the essay. So I've really been trying to get into them more. And I originally used to write for various publications. I published stuff in the Atlantic. I published stuff in the Daily Beast. And I would work with these organizations. But frankly, uh, the experience of working with them was generally not very great. And the hoops that I would have to jump through were immense just to get something that I didn't hate. <laughs> published and out there. Um, and I think with Substack, you know, I, I publish once every other week. I, I publish basically on a topic that that interests me. Uh, I have one coming out tomorrow um, on 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 uh, on Alec Baldwin's un- unfortunate uh, accidental shooting of, of that woman on his movie set and more 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 all on the um, the innate suffering of human life, like just the fact that the lot of the lot of human humanity is to suffer, and we kind of distract ourselves with with media. And uh, I'm I'm aware that you know that 
this is, this is not something you know that I, I'm speaking uh, about as an academic. I'm speaking about it as as a writer. But I do try to uh, try to keep that generality as a writer because again, I think maybe it's important to to not become too overfitted. Why do you think the essay is the native written art form of the internet? Well, because uh, as I said, people will read it with their head on a pillow. So we, nowadays, most people, they wake up, they reach for their phone, they bring their phone to their face, right? And we can all like, we can all both either do it and complain about it or just maybe not do it out of sheer spite, right? And then and, and complain about it, right? Um, and we can like try to, you know, pretend that that's not the world we live in, but that is the world that we live in. And it has its big negatives, but it also has some positives. And one big positive is that um, there is an art form that people, thousands and thousands of people will read if you put it out there. And that's a good article or essay. Mm -hmm. um, and people will really spend time on that. And so in that sense, I mean, you could say the blog is the is the native art form, but I'm not sure that blogs by themselves. You know, when I say blog, people mostly think of like, you know, life updates and, you know, stuff like that, um, kind of like minor things, um, but like really well-crafted pieces of prose that are kind of reflective and, and, and essayistic um, and, and literary, but draw from different sources. That I think is an art form capable of really thriving on the internet in a way that almost nothing else can. And so to me, it's like, just put, put your energy into the thing that's going to work. Like no one's going to read my, you know, experimental poetry, right? Like, no, like just nobody cares, right? And that's, that's fine. Maybe in a completely different culture, uh, where everyone was doing experimental poetry at a very different age. Like maybe if we were in Roman times, putting up poetry pamphlets, everybody's doing it, right? Nero's doing it, right? Like every, like maybe the Catullus is doing it, right? Like maybe that would be great, but it's like adapt yourself to your time. So in this time, the best thing to be is an essayist because that's where you can get the most attention. And, and, and I don't mean that as in like, you just want the most attention, but that's, that's when you can actually reach readers and give them something back that's relevant to them and that they're receptive to. And that's really, really important as a writer. I mean, with a writer, you're constantly, you're constantly serving and you don't really get anything back. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and the, 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 the online essay um, and the series of essays that I think I'm going to kind of try to keep doing my entire life. I'm just going to try to keep writing them every other week for the rest of my life. You know, um, one of the things I've enjoyed about reading people on Substack is you know, even though there's a, a very large spectrum of writers who I'm reading and, and their work is about different things, there is kind of like this overall flavor that's different about going through that avenue as opposed to like a mainstream media source. And I, I assume it has to do uh, with not having to go through the same editorial filters that one would have to go through if you were working through an editor at, say, The Atlantic or The New York Times or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? How, how does like the content and the, the feel and the attitude of your writing differ on Substack simply because it kind of goes directly from you to the reader rather than going through that kind of filter? I assume there's actually maybe both pros and cons to that. Yeah, there are definitely some cons. There are definitely the, the occasional con, but I think in general, it's it's an amazing ability to avoid the like terrible baleen filter that is, you know, the editor that you're working with at the New York Times or the Atlantic or whomever. Because first of all, those like, like what is the New York Times? It's just a blog. It's a, it's a blog that a lot of people work on, but it's just one big blog. It's just the Substack. Like there's no there's no difference between those two things. Not really. 
And, you know, once you realize that, you realize you're just in the hands of this like cadre of editors who, you know, like I've met the editors who work at New York Times. I've gone to parties with them. They're just people. They have no, you know, they're, they're, they're very good um, at their jobs, but they have no like innate special insight or ontological access to the truth uh, more so than anyone else. So in the end, you're just being filtered through someone else's perspective. And that can be a very good thing, I think, in a, in, in an, particularly in people who are maybe uh, overly ambitious um, and can't curb themselves and can't edit themselves. But even if, even if that's the case for you, there are various things that you can do, like writing pieces ahead of time and sitting on them and then reading them again. There are various kind of like common practices you can do. And frankly, most first, if you have a good first reader, right? Your first reader, uh, and I have people in my life like that, you just have a good first reader. They can give you good feedback, the sort of feedback an editor would give of like, you know, this paragraph isn't working or this is a bit too long, just shorten it a bit. Um, and they're going to give it to you a lot, a lot nicer than working with editors. But I, I'm, I'm very hopeful uh, about this contemporary moment and, and getting, getting, you know, enough people online that you can actually do stuff like that. And then finally, one last thing about that I'm very hopeful about is that, you know, there is, there is a sense in which people have begun to make their livings off of this because it turns out that people will pay for quality writing. I don't have any um, in, um, planning to go paid on my Substack. It's a it's free Substack, so anyone can sign up for it. Um, but, um, but you know, one day it's, it's possible years from now that I might. And it's amazing that people can now actually make direct money off of that. You might not think that writing on the essays could make you money, but some people make a lot of money writing essays on the internet. And that's because there's no bureaucratic filter, right? If I, if I write for the Daily Beast, I get a $400 check you know, eventually, and I go through, you know, hell, basically making sure that what comes out is not something I'm embarrassed by. I, and again, that sounds like I'm just producing amazing, I realize that this sounds like I'm just producing amazing stuff, and it's getting like destroyed by like the, the, the establishment or whatever. But to be honest, there is some, there, there is, the, a, a, the simple truth is, is that most people are doing stuff, many, many people that is more ambitious or interesting, but they they have to fit it into this very particular, you know, square square hole that has to apply to their entire audience. So of course, anything you do that's a little bit more literary, you know, like if you look at what writers have had to do historically to get interesting, well-written prose out there in big magazines, you should see the editors that David Foster Wallace used to send to like the editor at Harper's, right? There's stuff like, I will find your grave and like dig it up if you edit this like one more time, um, and that's because you know you're 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 going you're going through uh, this you're you're going through like a great a great intestine. Well, one more time, what uh, what's the name of your Substack? What's the name of your book? And, and where can people find you? The easiest way for people to find me is just to uh, look up Eric Coel, E-R-I-K-H-O-E-L on Google um, and my website and links to uh, the Substack, the Intrinsic Perspective. I really encourage people to apply because it's only, uh, to subscribe because it's only once every other week. So you just get an email every other week. It's really, it doesn't bother you. Um, and generally it's something pretty interesting that I, that, um, or at least I think certainly, uh, obviously. And then the book, The Revelations, um, if you want like a deep dive into science, if you like, you know, The Name of the Rose uh, by Umberto Eco, or you like kind of like big kind of intellectual um, books that are set in some sort of detailed world, like here, the world of science, uh, then that's something for you. 
Excellent. Well, Eric Howell, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. 